Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I forgot my own plan. Where's my... <laughs> is it in here? It is. <laughs> I plan to take over the slide presentation, so I, I uh, forgot that myself. Let's see if it works. All right. I want to preach a series this week, this month, uh, as, we attend, as we are in our Advent season on uh, basically surpassing our imagination. I take my inspiration from Ephesians 3.20, which says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. To me, that's pretty significant. I can ask for a lot. <laughs> and I can imagine a lot. And, and God can do beyond what we even ask or imagine. And my four-part series is as follows. <laughs> there we go. Uh, surpassing our imagination. Today is on beyond our greatest expectations. Advent 2, beyond our fairest justice. Advent 3, beyond our highest joys. Advent 4, beyond our wildest dreams. And then Christmas Eve, beyond our greatest news. And today I want to start out with just the thought of beyond our grandest expectations. I don't know whether it's just not reaching that far or not, but I guess, yes, yes. did you afford it or did I? You did. I did? Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so engaging the future with expectancy. At some time or another, a lot of our homes have heard the words, we're expecting. And it usually comes from a feminine voice. And then a, ma a male voice responds after a little bit and says, expecting what? <laughs> and the fem female voice says, a baby, of course. And then there's a long pause, <laughs> maybe a little bit of shock. Uh, how much is this going to cost? <laughs> or is it a boy or a girl? And all of a sudden, the mind begins to run with all kinds of imaginations of what this is going to involve and what the child will be like and all the things that go out into a, a broad future. Is that right? We are in Advent, and expectancy is there, and we're expecting. And the last uh, passage of our gospel reading this morning ended with, he is coming at, at such an hour that you do not expect. Mm -hmm. And so it calls upon us to be people of keen expectancy, but sometimes our expectations get in the way of expectancy. And that's my thought for this morning I want to share with you. I want to share with you a definition of what I would say expectations are, and I want to contrast that with expectations. And I know I'm using a specialized meaning of ex expectations, but... Uh, I think this fits the category in a lot of times. Expectations are our strong beliefs about the future. Something's going to happen, something's going to be there, and it's a very strong belief that it, it will be this way and it should be this way. Uh, for instance, in the, day, in the nature of a child coming forth, if the wife responds it's a boy or a girl, and maybe they've gone through a sonogram already, and they know, and all of a sudden the stereotypes begin to run, and if it's a boy, it's going to be someone who loves sports and likes to do battle and likes to fight and <laughs> likes to do, play with trucks. And maybe the stereotypes for girls run through the mind as well, what they're going to love, what they're going to like to do, and all these types of things. And all of a sudden, these expectations begin to establish themselves and tack on. And it doesn't allow any room for that child to be who that child is, right? And so those expectations become things that are set and you judge things by. And so to a certain extent, there's a place for expectations. I would say that for sure. 
job descriptions have expectations, and they should be met. And there are many things where expectations are good, but sometimes our expectations can be crippling, especially in human relationships where human personalities are involved and circumstances are changing and where individuality and free will is expressed. And sometimes it lends itself to control, and sometimes it lends itself to being demanding. And it closes our hearts to other possibilities. So expectations, sometimes its central feature can be just personal demand, and it may lead one to having very strong judgments in favor or against uh, what they're expecting concerning. Expectancy is something different. I think it's more special, and this is our call today. It's a way of being in the world that is in a continual state of anticipation and watchfulness. I'm expectant. What's going to happen? What's God going to do? And it's a frame of mind that involves openness and hopefulness regarding the future. It's the joy of expecting a child and saying, hey, I've got a child that's going to come into my life that I want to nurture and raise up, and I can't wait to discover who that child is and how, in terms of how they come forth and how they show forth their personality and their nature. And it's discovery. It's joyous discovery as you move into life. And so expectancy, unlike expectations, which can be closed, has an openness about them, a, a sense of positive hope about the future, that even if something isn't just the way we want it, it can turn to something good and favorable and wonderful in God's hand. And so expectancy often results in the joyful acceptance of what actually comes. I want to share with you how this played out in Israel and then how it plays out in the church, and then how it plays out in Christ Church in Kaipa, and then perhaps in our personal lives on a daily basis. So let's look at how Israel dealt with this in their own past experience. God gave a lot of prophecies through his prophets, and the Jewish people were given some sense that, hey, there's a Messiah coming one day who's going to make a new day. They knew what it was to struggle. They knew what it was to go through life with a lot of negative things going on, being in slavery, being... Uh, chastised by the Canaanites and the various people around them in Israel and being under bondage and taken into captivity. But they always had this sense, and God always gave them, starting with Moses declaring the prophet who was going to come one day, from Isaiah who was always declaring the fact that this suffering servant was coming into the world to deliver them and to raise up a kingdom that was going to be wonderful where justice would be there. Our text this morning talks about the Swords being beaten into plowshares. It's going to be peace and righteousness and justice and goodness reigning on the earth. And the Jews longed for that day with expectancy. But they also, in their own thinking, uh, had this sense that this expectation, uh, this ex expectancy had certain expectations attached to it. That their Messiah was very defined by one critical dimension. That he would come into the world, defeat all their enemies, and he would reign on his throne and he would do great deeds for Israel and bring them into a new reign of peace. And so those expectations set them up to receive Jesus Christ in one way or another. Well, when you come to, uh, when you come to the people who received Jesus when he came, Anna and Simeon were at the temple, and they both had a sense of expectancy. They, they rejoiced to receive, see Christ coming. This babe was you know, brought to them at the temple, and they prophesied and were excited and Simeon even said, let me die. <laughs> I can die in peace because Messiah has come and we are expecting a great day. And he received him. 
And you also have uh, Joseph and Mary. I I couldn't imagine being them, having Jesus. And many times it says in the text that Mary saw Jesus do something and she just put it away, she pondered it and put it away in her heart saying, what does this mean? She didn't set hard and fast expectations on Christ. She just had a sense of expectancy. This is the Messiah. I really don't understand what this means, but she tucks it away back in her heart and just waits with expectation. The Jewish people were all over the place in terms of their understanding of Messiah. We sometimes think that everybody, all the Jews, were expecting Messiah. They weren't. The Sadducees didn't even believe in a Messiah. They didn't hold one to be, they didn't expect it. It was just not something in their sensibility at all. And so when Jesus came on the scene saying, Messiah, yeah, you're just another one of those guys that come out saying, I'm going to reign over Israel and just cause trouble for us. And so the Sadducees had one perspective. The Essenes were very interesting because in their documents, they talk about two messiahs. One messiah is going to be a suffering messiah who's going to suffer for the people. He's going to be priestly, and he's going to die. He's He's the teacher of righteousness. And then they said they have a second messiah, who's going to be a king, he's going to defeat the, the sons of darkness. The sons of light will defeat the sons of darkness and will reign. And so they had to have two messiahs, which is kind of fascinating when you think about the prophecies that were there. Many of the other Jews uh, were different. They were selective. They couldn't uh, make separations. And so when you watch the scribes and Pharisees, they're saying, they just, they just grabbed one image from the prophecies that were there and said, We don't know what to do with all this suffering stuff. So Messiah is going to reign. Messiah is going to be king. He's going to bring in a new day of righteousness and justice and goodness. And we seize upon that. And when Jesus Christ didn't look like that conquering king, what good is he? He's not a Messiah we want. He's not the Messiah we expect. And he doesn't match up to our expectations. So he's he's to be rejected. He's to be not to be acknowledged. He's to be put away. He's a troublemaker. Uh, The disciples of Jesus didn't get it. You know, he talked to them. He told them about his death and his resurrection, and they never got it. Uh, When he finally died, they said, it's over. It's all done. Let's go back to fishing. Let's go back to our occupations because it's done. A dead Messiah is no Messiah, right? He's not going to be able to do what he... And they were totally surprised by the resurrection. Disciples of John and John the Baptist. Do we look for another? Are you the one or do we look for someone else? Who's coming? And uh, John sent his disciples to ask him that question while he was in prison. And they couldn't get it. And so you have all these expectations. And when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, all of a sudden you have disappointments and you become floundering in your life and you really can't figure it out. And that's how they were at this moment in time in history. And so you see the sense of expectancy has one dimension to it of hopeful future and openness and has a sense of being able to be flexible with what happens. But expectations become firm and set and hold you to a a set set of criteria and you judge whether it's right or wrong by those criteria and it's it's demanding. And it doesn't allow for God's hand to work. Obviously, Jesus came in a very different way. So how does the church play out with this? We're called to be people of expectancy. When Jesus left, he said, I'm coming again. There's going to be a new day. It's going to be a day of righteousness and goodness. All these prophecies regarding the Jewish scriptures are going to be fulfilled. There's going to be some horrific things that take place, as our gospel reading said today. But there's also going to be a wondrous day at the end of it. There's going to be a new day. It's going to be glory. It's going to be the reign of my kingdom. And you can expect that. You can have expectancy regarding that. And then Christians through the centuries began to debate what this second coming looks like. 
Is it going to be before the millennium? Is, is he going to come before the millennium? Is he going to come after the millennium? Or is there a millennium? If you don't know what a millennium is, God bless you. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's a thousand-year reign on the earth. Uh, then they started asking questions about a tribulation period. Is, is Jesus Christ going to come before the tribulation or after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation? Or will it be a tribulation? You know, and, and, they, and they debate that. And they have all these hard and fast categories and rules and expectations regarding Jesus. And some people get the bright idea, let's, let's create a no write some novels <laughs> and make a movie and get everybody to have the same expectations about the coming of Christ. And what a great idea. No. <laughs> There's too many flexibilities, too many things that are uncertain. Uh, probably a terrible idea. When I was a, a, a younger theologian, <laughs> in some of my naivety, uh, I had hard and fast ideas about what the second coming was going to look like. I was teaching courses on eschatology, last day events. I taught a course on the book of Revelation, and I had my charts. I had all my, uh, everything identified, and I had a lot of openness. I wasn't like some people, very extreme in naming dates. I wasn't doing that. But uh, there was this sense in which I, I really felt like I had a lot of certainty about what the future was going to be and what, what was going to take place and the events and all the, all the order of things. And then I was struck in my heart by the arrogance uh, associated with that, that somehow uh, better than all the, the people before the 1800s when dispensational theology really came into play, uh, all those people were naive and didn't understand, but all of a sudden I had a new insight, a new key to understand scripture, which they didn't have. And all of a sudden this idea about rapture and tribulation and all this type of stuff became just hardcore items that were part of our eschatology. And we worked all that stuff out, and we had our plans and our expectations. And you know what? If Jesus came in a different way, I wouldn't have seen him. I would have said he was a false, false messiah. <laughs> I would have been disappointed in Jesus. My heart was closed. I had my set criteria. It was expectations set. And I received in those 1980s, uh, mid-80s, this uh, pamphlet that was sent out to all kinds of Bible teachers and preachers around the country by a person by the name of... Uh, Edgar Wisenot, 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. And everybody was saying 1988 because you count up the number of years, it just is 1988. It's uh, the, the, the prophecies of Daniel, the years of Daniel. It, it comes out exactly to 1988. And then it didn't happen. And so we went to Actors Drawing Board and named another date. <laughs> and it didn't happen then. And it kept failing over and over again. And then we had Harold Camping doing similar things. And it's like, what are you guys doing? Jesus said... You will not know the day or the hour. What are you doing with all of this stuff? You're not giving me any room for movement or flexibility on what I might plan to do. And what I also found uh, striking to me was this passage of Scripture. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Let me read it to you. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Messiah in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets are saying the Spirit of God was predicting through them uh, and their writings the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would come after it. And it says they were trying to figure it out. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you who are living in the first century and the things that, you have now been, that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. Now I started thinking about that text, and I said if the prophets who received the prophecies themselves 
couldn't figure it out, couldn't put together suffering and glory, who am I to think I can figure it out here in the 21st century or 20th century when I was doing that thing? The prophets couldn't put it together. They couldn't piece it together. They couldn't figure out how a, a suffering Messiah and a, a, a reigning Messiah fit together. They had some missing facts. So the assumption of, of expectations is you know all the facts and you know what is best. And sometimes you don't know all the facts. What the prophets didn't know was that Christ would come in two comings. There was no way they could have known that from the Jewish scriptures. First advent, second advent. He would come the first time to suffer and rise again, and then he would come again millennia later. Nobody was expecting that. The, the, even, even the New Testament writers weren't expecting 2,000 years to transpire between first and second coming. God's doing his own thing, and it doesn't fit our charts <laughs> and our expectations, and you can miss it. They also didn't understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew that Messiah would suffer, but there was nothing that said Messiah was going to rise from the dead and ascend to heaven and wait 2,000 years before he'd come again. So they had two facts that were missing from their charts. First and second coming and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with that missing fact, their expectations were totally askewed, totally false, totally wrong. They thought they knew it all. They thought they knew what was best. And they were totally blown out of the water. So when you start thinking about, okay, what do I do with this? The prophets didn't know. And the angels didn't even know. <laughs> Our text even said that this morning. The angels don't even know the, day, the hour. Well, if the angels don't know and the prophets don't know, do you think we know? <laughs> right? So what should be our sense about the second coming of Christ? Have expectancy, but don't have solid, hard, and fast expectations that God has to meet because you put God in a box and he doesn't fit well in our boxes. He'll blow them apart. I have... I have uh, still have ideas about what the second coming is going to be about, but I'm totally open to him to smash my, smash my chart. He, he can blow it away. And you know what? I'm still going to be expecting. I'm not going to lose my hope, the fact that he's coming again. He's going to reign in glory. So what do we learn from this? Followers of Jesus Christ should live in constant faith and obedience and a state of expectancy regarding what God may do in our midst. Let God be God. And don't bind him or your own faith with your rigid expectations. If you do, you have a high likelihood of missing out on what God plans to do among us. Amen? So let me offer you two, two applications. One for Christ Church at Kuiper. This is my first Sunday here. So it's a new, I'm your second rector of this church. And it's a delightful day. And I'm no Messiah. I won't tell you, say that any sense to you. <laughs> And uh, I'm excited. I hope you're excited about the days to come and what God might do in our midst. But I hope you don't have hard and fast expectations of me, and I'm going to promise you I'm not going to have hard and fast expectations of you. I don't know who we are. We need to know each other, right? We need to know each other in terms of what our potential is, what our gifts are, what God has placed in our midst, what our opportunities are outside these doors. And so as we approach this time together, let's have open hearts to God. Certainly you should have some expectations. Certainly I need to meet certain criteria. But hey, let's have an openness. What is God going to do here? And let's just pray with open hearts, seeking God, saying, God, make a move. Surprise us. Blow out our expectations out of the water 
and do things abundantly beyond that we can even ask or imagine. And God is capable of doing that if we have open hush to him. He'll do it anyway. <laughs> He'll do it anyway. We might just miss it, right, if we don't have those open hearts. And I want to just emphasize that one thing you can be sure of me is I have gospel-centered priorities. And I feel like these are the priorities I want to share with you in terms of how our church functions and how we move forward. We're centered upon formation, the formation of individuals, that they might be centered upon Jesus Christ and have their hearts uh, aligned with him and their lives aligned with him, being remade in the image of Jesus Christ. We want our church to be filled with community within the body. That involves our worship, but it also involves what we do together as believers, but what we also do in our homes and in our world, right, in terms of the sense of how we are the community, the body of Jesus Christ, because as Anglicans, we do things together, and that's our sense of identity, global and, uh, and local communities of believers following Jesus Christ. And then to the world, our mission. Mission to the world. What does God want us to do through Enya Kaipa? How are we going to claim this city as our city and these people as our people and Redlands and other places where you may live? How do we do this? Let's have open hearts to how God might lead us to, to be creative and that God might lead us to find individuals who might just open doors of opportunity that we just never could have imagined and go beyond our imagination. Let me make a personal application for the last. When my wife and I were finishing up seminary, uh, we were expecting our second child. And uh, it was, the child was due right about the time of my graduation. And we were excited, very excited about Stephanie coming into the world. It was at a time when you didn't, sonograms were just coming in, 1983. And so you didn't do sonograms unless you knew something was wrong and had some type of problem going on, because they were quite expensive at the time and what have you. So we were approaching our birth without any expectation that anything was wrong and that we didn't know the genders. We couldn't, we couldn't name Thomas <laughs> before he was born, which is a new day, right? It's kind of a, a neat thing that you can name your child. And so here you are, here we were. When Stephanie was born, she was whisked away from us immediately at birth, and we're saying, what's going on? We want to see our baby. And they took her away from us, and we were just left in silence. And uh, what we learned shortly after that was that uh, Stephanie had trisomy 18, which is a, a third, chromosomal, uh, third chromosome on her 18th pair, which made her, it very significant in terms, of, in terms of the lower the number, the more significant the problems. Trisomy 21 is Down syndrome. So trisomy 18, Stephanie had all kinds of issues. Many times these children don't make it to term. They're miscarried. And Stephanie was born, and oftentimes they die shortly after birth, but Stephanie beat the odds. We took her home. Uh, she was less than five pounds. Uh, she had all kinds of physical problems. She had catatonic seizures she where she would just stop breathing, go just stiff, and we would, hear, we would hear her silence, which is kind of a strange thing, but we could hear it. And uh, after three and a half months, she began to have respiratory problems. We took her to the hospital. Debbie and I were going back and forth. I was working, and... Uh, at nighttime, I was there, and I was, I was sleeping, I guess, in some ways, but as I was holding her in my arms, she, she died. She passed away. And I was just finishing seminary. I was just uh, entering, God, what are you going to do with it? We've dedicated our lives to Christ, and that did not fit in my criteria of what God might do. He, he destroyed my expectations. He shattered them, and I was crushed. I didn't know what to do. I struggled. I struggled to pray. <laughs> I was faithful 
but I just went through motions, and I depended upon the people of God to give me some comfort and hope because I didn't understand what God was doing. I could not understand why God would let something like that come into the life of someone who loved him and wanted to serve him. And I didn't have any room for him to move in different ways. And obviously over time, I've, sh- I've been sh- reshapened and opened my heart to different possibilities. And I've seen God bring good out of things evil, right? Turn them upside down. But many times when we face expectations and we face our future and we have these strong expectations, we are setting ourselves up for disappointment and frustration and anger with God. And so as you look at your life and you look at the things you're expecting, and sometimes maybe there are things in your past that you had expectations and somebody failed, give it up. Have expectancy. But let those expectations go. Because sometimes they crush our lives and they crush our relationships and they can be very destructive to us. And what I would just encourage you to say is that God's on the move. God is always on the move. Christ is coming again. And the Holy Spirit as wind is among us and with us to this day. And he wants to do something special in our lives and in our midst, in us, through us, uh, among us. And let's just open our hearts and say, God, what is it that you want to do? In and through us as a body, in and through us as individuals, as you work in this place. And let's open our hearts to that as we pray. Father, we just lift our hearts to you and say again, God, as we've said many times, we're yours. Give us hearts that are hopeful, hopefully expectant that you will do good things, that you're too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And we, when we cannot trace your hand, we can always trust your heart. Give us that hope. Give us that steadfastness. And God, blow away our expectations beyond our wildest dreams. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.